Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Fraser Hines, and I played Jamie McCrimmon in Doctor Who. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, or as Jamie might say, enjoy your travels. All right, we're starting to record, and I just heard the toilet flush, so I assume we're in the safe zone now. Since he's repooped. <laughs> Monitoring uh, and commenting yeah, on his well, bathroom habits. <laughs> well, I have to have something to put on the end of the podcast. <laughs> Especially for this book. time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the piratical task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. That is how you pronounce that, isn't it? Piratical? I don't know what you're trying to say. Piratical. Oh. As in, as in like a pirate. Pirate-like is maybe what I, I don't know. Piratical? Piratical? I don't know this adjective. I okay. hope so. Someone will, someone will correct you. Maybe it rhymes yes. with tyrannical. Mm. Piranical. Maybe it does. Okay. Uh, my name is Tony Witt, and today we have a piratical three-person discussion panel ready to walk the plank, including our so-called <laughs> expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. Very much wanting to walk the plank tonight after our uh, pre-podcast discussion. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. I'm, I'm sorry to to treat you with the lovely stories. It's but, uh, perfectly it's fine. Okay. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. I was feeling suicidal anyway. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. To any investigators who find this recording later after Tony tries to erase it, I did not walk the plank voluntarily. No, she did I not. was marked down the plank at sword point by Mr. Tony Witt. Yes, but enough about reading this book. Yes, we've got to get into it at some point. Before we do that, before we talk about Patreon, let me apologize to our patrons for last time's um, problems. Uh, we did not have a very successful recording of the episode. Not anything to do with our guest. He was our, terrific. We loved our him. Our guest was wonderful and his... Very si- game. Yeah, and his, our, his side of the audio turned out beautifully. Ours, however, as you heard, did not. Even with all the editing tricks that I have up my sleeve and paraphrasing Allison as best that I could without actually imitating her voice. Oh, so, that would have been brutal. 
Yeah, I, I thought about it, but then I lay down and felt better. So <laughs> we apologize profusely. It won't, it may happen again, but maybe not for a while. This is why Fingers you pay crossed. top dollar for this entertainment product. Yes. Yeah, speaking of which, please visit our new Patreon page. <laughs> or not. I mean, goodness, if that's the sort of quality program you're getting, maybe you don't want it to do so. If you do, it's at patreon.com forward slash Fuck. It's at Patreon. Ah, even I don't want to say it. Might get some more clicks if you add that in there. Well, true. Yeah, so you might get taken to a completely different page for different patronage. (laughs) (laughs) Patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Seems to be registered in Nevada. It does indeed. <laughs> Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you've used them as kindling to stay warm during the polar vortex. <laughs> as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being for the just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air and to pay for my speech therapy lessons. <laughs> As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby's Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you all. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And we will miss you when you withdraw your patronage after this episode. Stop giving people ideas. (laughs) We also have... This episode brought to you by Eeyore, the podcaster. Yes, we also have a discussion group. Where you, if you want to go, you can go. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> Where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. That was a good Eeyore. Your wife divorced you. He, was, he always was my favorite character. That sounds like the character from King of the Hill. It's Dooley, yes. You're Dooley, okay. You told me last time I did a respectable Dooley. Yes, and I wanted to perform for the masses. And best of all, it's hosted on Goodreads. <laughs> You can tell what I'm going to edit out. You can find us there at tinyurl. Fuck. tinyurl.com forward slash y7k. I hope you're trademarking all these pornography sites. You're up all these domains. Now we have to start again. tinyurl.com y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. All right. We continue now with the thing that we've been trying to put off this whole time. The penultimate Troughton story. Ah. <gasps> oh. It's his next to last story, which is ruined. Oh, really? I mean, I don't know. Well, why did you think we were getting J.J. McCory in the next time? I don't know. He's a special guest, and we only have special guests when we have special... I thought it was oh. the only time he would have us. Oh, well, that, yeah. there's tr- that's true, too. Um, it's okay. <clears throat> but there was a reason why he wanted to be here for it. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, the next to last Troughton story. The novelization of The Space Pirates. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Space Pirates, adapted by Terrence Dickens from the Robert Holmes script that aired from 3869 to 41269, published by Target Books in March 1990. As of this recording in February of 2019, this, ca- this title is currently out of print but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 127 pages. Arr! So many lasts and all that lasts here. And we're going to go through all of them. This is Dick's. Last novelization hmm. under the Target imprint. The last dick. 
thought we read a the different last one that you called the last one. I was wrong. Mm. I believe I said that about Planet of Giant Dicks, the first one that you read with us. I thought it was a different one, because I talked about how tired of the whole thing he seemed, and how he was phoning it in. And well... I thought it was like 93, because this one's 90, right? Yeah, this one's 90. Okay, I thought there was one that was into the 90s. No. Okay. No, in fact, we're probably thinking about... God, we're thinking about... I must be thinking of someone else. The one... You were thinking about John Peel, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Um... But I thought we liked John. Someone was weary of it. <laughs> I well, the, you can kind of tell with this one. It's the third to last story from the '60s to be novelized, with Planet of the Giants coming only two months before it. So, his writing style in that book is very much like the writing style here, and John Peel's Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks coming three years later under the Virgin imprint. <clears throat> it's also Patrick Troughton's next to last story. And Peter Bryant's last credited story as producer. Hmm. The first episode of the story is the last episode of the show ever to be shot in Lime Grove Studio D, where the series' very first episodes were shot. Hmm. And finally, it is the last broadcast story that we still have missing episodes from. All but episode two of the six are missing. Which is probably... A relief. A relief. I would think so. So everything after this we have... Technically, we have all the Pertwee. (laughs) We have all the Pertwee we need. Um, But we don't have the original uh, color videotapes. Those were also wiped in the 70s. Luckily, those had been sold here. And there were commercial video uh, tape players available at that point. So we have... Really kind of nasty color recordings off air that they use to retrofit the color. So it's weird. We have black and white Pertwee episodes, but they're now all colorized. The weird thing about this one, that's the weirdest thing about this one. It's another one of the firsts. The existing episode that we have of this episode only exists because it is the earliest known off air domestic videotape recording of a Doctor Who episode. Wow, that's 10 years before I knew that was possible. And it was obviously someone who had a lot of dosh. Yeah. yeah. Because they were not cheap back then. I think they went for something like, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. <laughs> but of course, if you spent that kind of money on device to record off of TV, of course you'd record Doctor Who. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Except... They recorded episode two and probably thought, oh, we missed the first one. Then they watched the episode and thought, oh, damn, fuck this shit. <laughs> and they didn't record the rest no, of it. No, thank you. Well, I have suspect it's because videotapes were also ridiculously expensive. Yeah. So if they weren't recording really quality stuff, mm-hmm. they wouldn't decide to do it. Over and over, yeah. to be honest, this episode is, yeah. Um, it's also Robert Holmes' second story, his first being The Crotons. It's the second story to have the regular cast not available for the recording of an episode because the three regulars needed to have an extra week to do location filming for the War Games, which is his last story. So all their appearances in episode six were pre-recorded weeks before. The only other story up to this point not to feature the cast at all was, of course, Mission to the Unknown, which we did for our Patreon special. First story to feature the longest gap between the opening credits and the first appearance of the TARDIS crew in the story. A whopping 14 minutes into a 24-minute episode. 
I was wondering if it was similar in the episode to in the book. That's it's exactly that. Yeah, if anything, they show up a little earlier in the book. And finally... So that's not counting the episode we watched that doesn't have the Doctor in it at all? Um, yeah. That's not counting that one. And finally, it's the first story on which young John Nathan Turner worked as a floor assistant. He would, of course, go on to produce the show from 1980 until its cancellation in 1989, the year before this book was published. Story was a last-minute replacement for a story called The Dream Spinner by Paul Weaver, which was dropped at a late stage due to what Wikipedia calls technical reasons. I guess they couldn't realize it, yeah. too many effects or whatever. The idea on Holmes's part was to do a story set in space that paid tribute to westerns, but apart from Milo being a prospector, there's just not a lot about this story that screams western. Mm -hmm. It screams, mind you, but for other reasons. I thought it did. It screams western? Yeah. Okay, I thought they were doing a prospector, oh, okay. and they've got, the, yeah, they've got the Union troops there. Yeah. Well, I thought it was debate. very western. Okay. And in Terrence Dick's defense, he was so busy rewriting Seeds of Death that he did not script edit this one. It was handled by Derek Sherwin, who stepped back into his script editor role one more time. Apparently one of his duties was to pad the script, as the producers wanted a six-parter and Holmes had plotted only a four-parter and God is a show. <laughs> Indeed. Miles so. a quarter is to run down. They and, went that away. Right, exactly. I have not read the back of the book in a while, so I'm going to uh, take this upon myself. Simply because, you know, it's like staring into the face of God, only not in a good way. Knock yourself out. I am, well, I, I may after I read this. The charges detonate in a series of silent explosions, and Space Beacon Alpha 1 disintegrates into lumps of metal. The space pirates have discovered a new source of precious argonite. General Hermack of the Space Corps, diverts his V-ship to investigate and arrives in the Pliny system in time to witness the destruction of another beacon. Determined to trap the pilot, pir <laughs> determined to trap the pirates, he leaves a squad of guards on Beacon Alpha 4, and shortly afterwards in the beacon's computer bay, the incongruous shape of a blue police telephone box materializes. Suspected by the Space Corps of being pirates, and then pursued as spies by the pirates themselves, the Doctor, Zoe, and Jamie risk asphyxiation in the vacuum of space, execution and explosion, god damn it all, in their attempts to unmask the mastermind behind the thefts of Argonite. Earning that, was, that rating. <laughs> that was one of the hardest ones to ever read. That, it, that was actually The alliteration. You asked for it. I did. <laughs> Asphyxiation, execution, and explosion. It's just an X-rated book. It's a triple X. It's a triple go. X book. Yes. Also, if you look at the cover... Where's Vin Diesel? It's got the shit logo, the McCoy logo, <clears throat> which always looks weird when we're looking at a story from the 60s. Luckily, there aren't that many of them. And this constipated guy. I'm going to make <laughs> no. the bold assertion that this is the worst Doctor Who cover I have personally seen. <laughs> It is the most unappetizing. It is. It is a bad. Is it the bad in many ways? Is it the logo? Is it the pirate? Is it the? Uh... It's mostly the painting. It's the sort of unnatural angle of articulation, the stiffness, the grimace, the one-piece metal swimsuit. The minnow entering him through the groin. Yeah. Yeah, it's. It's not interesting. Weird. It's just that sort of bad, stiff matte painting by a person who doesn't know how to do it anatomy sort of weird yeah which is weird because the artist for that cover is actually <clears throat> not at all bad and 
the other thing that they did. I can't remember who did it. It probably says on the inside cover. I'm also having read the book, not entirely sure who it's supposed to be still. Ah, I assume it's one of the space pirates. Cabin, or whatever his name was. Kevin. I don't remember anyone with riveted arms. Dervish. Was it whirling Dervish? I think I don't think that ever actually happens in the book. I was waiting for it. There's something about Madeline circled round Dervish. They f- flirt with it. I don't think the word whirl ever appears. That was probably Terrence Dick saying, "God damn it! I have to do something to make this interesting yeah. for myself." You see how repulsive it is in in real life, though. Well, and it's just the proportions, the fingers versus the wrist, the teeth, the forearm. Yeah, it's just. All the body parts are the wrong proportion, but it's not like a sort of interesting, alien, beautiful, or horrible sort of thing. It's just... Boring. Yeah. Well, just... just bad like pro- Duke bad, Nukem. Yeah, well, bad... <laughs> poorly proportioned, messed up, foreshortening, weird angles. Yes. That wasn't one of us voiding our bladder in disgust, by the way. That was our pouring some uh, wine out of our uh, boxed wine box. And Why the, do we need it? And that back cover, I've not seen that much co- that it's much copy on it's the a back lot. cover. It's It basically is a plot summary of the entire first episode. So I'll say that that cover was so unappealing <laughs> that the book, actu- it actually did the book a favor. It was a little better than I was expecting because oh, really? I thought, oh, now we have reached the nadir. This is just going to be the, <laughs> the worst one by far. <laughs> The low point, here we are in the trough with a shovel. <laughs> and then it wasn't actually nearly as bad as the, the cover might suggest. We've reached the 2000 election, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, dear. Not knowing that 2016 is coming. Oh, yeah. Good Lord. Where do we start? Do we want to start with Trey Cortez's interesting theory about this story? Oh, yeah. It has nothing to do with the novelization. He says as much, but he did send us this, as they call it on NPR, this audio postcard. Oh, I love an audio postcard. Yes, let's see what he has to say. This is Trey Cortez chiming in with my theory as to why um, this is a queer story that there's a queer reading of the Space Pirates in Doctor Who. I think Milo Clancy is a leather daddy, um, evidenced by not so much the novelization, but in the TV version. When he first comes in, he is clearly heard singing over the rainbow. And he's wearing sort of leatherish, sparkly leather, glittery pants. Um, he's got the hanky. He's got the big handlebar mustache. And he is talking about his partner, Dom. Yes, and the partner's name is Dom, or the former partner, the estranged partner. Yeah. And he talks about how Madeline was like a daughter to him. So there's this really close, almost familial relationship between um, Milo and Dom. And then if we go into Dom's study, it's full of antiques. So like even in the future, these gays love their antiques. And, you know, I'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek, but um, I think it's worth considering that Robert Holmes may have known some of this stuff about um, the gay life of the... 60s and mid-century because um, he was a police officer so if the police officers were arresting the gays or if he was involved in that I don't know what his personal beliefs were around it but he might have certainly been aware Um, he's certainly aware of Polari um, which was the language homosexuals used to speak to each other in Britain Mm -hmm. because um, he references it in his third Doctor story Carnival of Monsters so I think there's um, enough 
evidence there that you could do a queer reading of the Space Pirates, and I think that's the way of making the story much more enjoyable for me. Thank you. Well, that was. So you say Milo and Dom were the. Well, the yes, the Milo and Dom were um, partners in more ways than one, and <sighs> then Milo. Yeah. I would not have gotten that from the book because I pictured essentially Mr. Edwards from the TV version of Little House on the Prairie. Really? Um, well, or, or sort of Yosemite, Yosemite Sam type. Like he kind of is. The claim jumper. They, they make a big deal about the, the plaid shirt. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you darn crazy galoot! Yeah, Victor they have French. a big deal about the plaid shirt. I've had to look this up. I envision him as Victor French. Yes. So not yes. sexy is what I'm saying. Yeah, not <laughs> sexy I did not consider this. Well, wow. you know, standards of <laughs> gay daddy mountain. sexy. Yeah, that's idea. true. And prospector and, and you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is an interesting theory. Especially since I did find the clip that he's talking about. And sure, sure enough, indeed, when we first see Milo Clancy, he is indeed singing somewhere huh. under the rainbow, somewhere over the rainbow under his breath. So it's like... It is an interesting idea. It is an interesting idea. It's not in the book, unfortunately. <laughs> no, it's not. Nothing so interesting as that. I hate to say it, but Terrence Dix has kind of made it clear through other writings of his that he's not all that progressive when it comes to gays and lesbians. As a matter of fact, it's kind of weird that when we get to the Eighth Doctor books, and I forgot to talk to um, Skip about this, when we get to the Eighth Doctor books, uh, later run of them, um, he he meets one of the um, spies for the Russians, the one of the British spies for the Russians. I can't remember his name, Guy something or other. Um, it's it's the one that the um, the movie Another Country was made about. The two spies, one of them was gay. They ended up living in Russia, and the Doctor is described as being disgusted by Guy's lifestyle. But in the very next book written by somebody else, much more progressive, he meets Alan Turing. <laughs> and he says of Alan to defending him to somebody else, Alan's sexuality means is, means absolutely nothing. Yeah. You should be treating him as a human being. And it's like, okay, well, I'm sorry to hear that Terrence Sticks is kind of on the side of it a little <laughs> bit. But it's, you know, generations and upbringing and all that. Better for him to leave that element out of the book than just use it as an object of ridicule. Yeah. That's true. That's yeah. true. Um, so it it's interesting. I wish there were more of the story around for us to check it because there's only the one episode and my god, that episode is just the book. Let's talk about yeah. the book. <laughs> Thank you, Trey. We'll, we'll come back to that reading uh, as and when we can. Let's try to be nice about this because we keep getting dinged in our iTunes yeah. reviews. Did we get for another one? We do, and it was a it was a positive one, so we're back up. But I'm sure that someone's going to say, "Y'all just hate the books." It's like, no, we don't. No, no, we don't hate the books. We we do this with love. So in that in that <laughs> the parent about to smack their kid upside the head. Exactly. Why are you making me do this? Exactly. In that vein, <laughs> we're going to try to come up with what's good about. 
this book of the Space Pirates, if we can. It really was better than I was expecting based on the atrocious cover. Really? Okay. Yeah, it definitely sped along pretty quickly. The story progressed relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't, since we don't know what the original story was like, since we don't have it, I'm assuming Terrence Dix did a, a good job of keeping everything intact. But, mm -hmm. yeah, it's... He makes me like Milo Clancy more on the page than I do on screen. Yeah. You know, he does manage that. And he makes uh, Hermac actually seem like a military commander rather than this weird sort of over-the-top um, spectacle of one, which he is on screen. I am General Hermac. Howdy. And this is Major Warren, my ADC. Major. What are you yeah. doing in this system? Why are we not on feedback to central flight information? Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to play you some of his dialogue at some point because he's just astonishing. The actor who played him was which character? Um, back the um, the leader of the V ships. He was the waiter at the restaurant at the end of the universe at the end of the universe in the uh, Douglas Adams uh, TV mm. series. Ah. Would you all like to see the menu, or would you care to meet the dish of the day? Meat? What is it? It's an Amiglian major cow. I'll bring him over. Okay, we'll meet the meat. That's cool. So... Well, clearly Dix is completely enamored of the character. Doesn't he say maybe that's why he's a general two or three times? Yeah. Yeah, he does. And yet... Weird, it's weirdly syncophantic for a fictional character. A little bit. You know he's not going to be reading this, Mr. Dix, right? Yes, especially since Nikolai Hermak doesn't seem like that great a commander. I mean, he's got an idea and he runs with it, but... He also gets fooled very easily. Yeah. So, school of leadership. I'm not talking now about the character so much as Dick's take on the character. The dick take? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that being calm and emphatic at the same time is the essence of leadership. Where mm -hmm. the content of what you say is pretty important as well. So what we see is that he's quite competent, but it's it, it actually is a little strange how fawning Dick's is about a character who hmm. is perfectly competent in his job, but Dick seems to see as some sort of idealized archetype of what a military commander really? should be. Do you have um? Do you have a? Do you have a passage that? Oh, I didn't know there would up? be homework. <laughs> well, I'm thinking of the first, uh, or the, the first or second scene. Actually, it's the second scene in which he appears. Okay. Um, he goes on the loudspeaker and says, "Here's what I think is going on." I think that the pirates are targeting the beacons because of the precious minerals oh, in the, or the metal in them that they want to harvest. Mm -hmm. So we're going to act on that premise from here on out. I'm greatly paraphrasing here. Um, and mm -hmm. so we are going to proactively try to head them off. We're going to assume they're targeting the beacons. Yes. Here's our strategy. Lays it out in a way that actually seemed kind of strange to me to disclose over the PA system to the general staff. <laughs> And it seemed this is awesome leadership moment. I'm like, mm -hmm. Well, he has a pretty good theory about what's going on, but it's kind of strange that instead of discussing it with his senior officers, he just went straight to the PA system and announced yes. it. Yes. And he is correct in some ways, mm -hmm. but I mean, it's, it's not this master stroke no. that Dick seems to interpret it as. Yeah. He's just a person who speaks with assurance and acts on what he thinks is the most reasonable course of action, and that's not really extraordinary. No, that's true. It's kind of a weird mismatch. 
I, he tells rather than shows us why this is an extraordinary leader. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was almost like Dix was doing a version of uh, 60s Star Trek. Because that would have been, well, I have to check the dates. I know that it aired in Britain for the first time in 1969. But it doesn't suggest like the charisma of a Kirk. Not at all. Mm. Not at all. Nor does the performance, because believe me, <laughs> there's nothing charismatic about that performance. <laughs> Yeah. It, Dix was so enamored of the character, I was afraid he was going to have Madeline fall in love with him. And fortunately, oh, that did not happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he needed her for other purposes, right? By the way, were either of you surprised by the big reveal? Yeah. Really? Dad's still alive? Or or that she was behind it oh, all? Gosh, no. She no. was so obviously the villain from like the first scene she was in. Yeah. Well, so much so that I hear the... People outside are trying to come the in. The dad being away. alive was a surprise. That was a surprise, though. It was one of those surprises that I sat there going, wait a minute. How? For all these years? And she's the one that decided not to visit the study? Did she know he was in there doing his all kind of wizened old man type thing? Well, and it, such? it was a sort of surprise where, well, I didn't see that coming. Because you could, as the writer, make up literally any concept and throw it at me so I can't possibly all see them coming. Like, it wasn't really clever and interesting. Ooh, I never thought about that. It's more like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Because you just made something up out of left field. It, it, is, yeah. it is prefigure. We hear, we read a lot about how Milo and, uh, what was his name, Mr. Isiri? What's his name? Dom. Uh, yes. As in the dominant the one dom. in the relationship. We're very close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Had a falling so out. Close. So that connection is discussed, right. um, but I maybe even discussed. Yes, I well, I didn't expect <laughs> him to turn up, but then it doesn't. It is somewhat foreshadowed, but it doesn't feel earned, and it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's literally like they put them all in his room. Gee, I wonder what's gonna be in his room. Hmm. Yes. Could it be him? And why did hmm. they think to go in there? Who thought to put them in yeah. there? Um. Yeah, I know. I I immediately whenever they were talking about the V ships or the the what are they what are they called the, the minnows ships, the minnows yeah whatever the the ships are that she has yeah all her that, ships yeah that conversation I'm like oh then she's behind the space yeah. space darts that was like yeah, the, the third darts, thing you know. that showed you she's the pirate like, yeah. oh, like she has those ships and we she's have special cones that we use to we tell them apart we just met this character and she's telling us exactly oh yeah the I have pirate ships to the... <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're very expensive. They're you very want to see expensive. them? Yeah. <laughs> want to race one of my pirates? And, and we tell them apart because we have the special nose cone that goes on yeah. that we can just kind of slide into. Yeah. Oh, good lord. Yeah. Yeah. No. That that was. I, I knew. Totally that, saw it coming. I said in my notes that it very much reads a little bit like a Scooby Doo plot. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's an original thought. I think I actually stole that from somebody. I can't remember who though. Either way. Yeah. Still. It's it's very see through. Yeah, it's not terribly impressive. So one thing that Dix did here that was, or I, maybe it's here, who was the original writer of the story? Robert Holmes. Who one we'll thing that's hear a lot of very soon. A little different is that usually we have three and sometimes a fourth faction. We've got the Doctor and his party, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking of like the last couple of seasons worth of stories here. We have the institution, the base under siege, whether oh, it's yeah. a military or government entity or a school, or a corporation, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then we have the villains. Right. And sometimes that's it, but sometimes we have an obvious villain, we have a fourth faction of 
the sort of master villain who is controlling or manipulating or deploying the villains. But here we have five. We've got the Doctor and his party, we've got the institution of the Space Force, mm -hmm. and we've got the different institution of the mining company, and we have the pirates, who are the obvious villains, mm -hmm. and we have um, uh, Mr. Edwards, um, which we call it... Uh, oh, Milo Clancy. Yes, and we have Milo Clancy. And that is a more complex structure than we've seen before. Yeah, that's true, which is probably why the regulars get pushed off to the margins so severely. But it's not confusing in the way it easily could become confusing. That's true. And the usual mode of the story is to pile in a lot more characters than are necessary in the institution, on the base, or in the company, etc., right. and have them fight amongst themselves. And we can never mm -hmm. tell the names apart. Yeah. Right, and here, goodness, don't ask me the names of people in this story, for the most part, but either. They are, but they are but, distinct. Yes. yes. It's much easier to keep the characters distinct because in each of those entities, we only have two or three characters. Yes. Or one to three characters. Exactly. We have, in fact, I can try to name them. So it's not a bad structure. Yeah, because they, they actually, it's weird. Holmes, even when he's writing badly, does pretty decent characters. We have Hermac, we have his adjutant Ian, and we have one other character who ends up dying... Um, Soba, that's it. Sorba, that's Sorba. it. Because I kept thinking Sorbet. <laughs> so well, he gets Kevin, melted. Assuming it was Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, he gets... Oh, disappointed! <laughs> Speaking of people, <laughs> it turned out to be disappointing. Yes. And then we have Madeline Sigri. We have her dad, Dom. And then you have the double act of uh, Kevin and the other guy. Usually... Exactly. Yeah, usually <laughs> that's the thing. That's Dervish, what yes. down. Dervish. Dervish. Holmes does double acts quite well mm. later in his career. He's not quite there yet. Peter David does that really well in teen comics. I'm thinking specifically here of X Factor. Yes. But he has this huge cast of 8 to 16 characters he'll be juggling. He does a very good job mm -hmm. of having three or four alternating stories per issue where he has them in pairs. Mm. And then yeah. after he finishes a story arc, he'll keep some of the pairs the same, and then he'll switch some of them up. And it's it's mm. a very good way of dealing with a large cast. It really is. I'll tell him you said so. He's going to be in Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I'll get to meet him. Are, are you going to be in Maryland also? Yeah, or? yeah. Uh, uh, that's right. We have to talk oh, okay. about that. <laughs> yes. How nice for him. Yes, we What's do. What's it have to do with us? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it does. Well, you said earlier, Allison, that it did very much feel like Bonanza to you. It felt yeah. very much like a Western. Space Western is an established genre. So. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, I thought, well, they, they specifically talk about, with Clancy, talk about him being a prospector. They talk about claim jumping. Yes. And, yeah, the the motifs of the claim jumper and the Union Army and the... Um, the big mining corporation. Oh, those yeah. are those are Western motifs. Yeah, I guess so. And then the strangers who ride into town. Only the doctor doesn't have it all a cowboy kind of persona, but <laughs> no. but they are but they are three strangers who are passing through the sort of established storyline. True, so, and not having much of an effect on any of it. Really, it's uh, kind of weird. Getting I caught think, up in it. Right, I think they actually do affect one thing, but. Damned if I can remember what it is. There's something that happens that if they hadn't been there, it would have turned out differently. But I also can't say I care. So it was kind of a relief that there were no um, space natives. 
Yeah. I don't think we would have been <laughs> happy with how they were presented. No. no. So. Not at all. Robert Holmes is going to do that later, too. But space is... <laughs> space right. is one of the only ways you can do that story now of vast tracts of land where you're just out there with limited communications and resources and you are at the mercy of pirates. And weirdly enough, it's not going to be Robert Holmes that does that story. It's going to be Malcolm Hulk, who we're going to read next time. He's not there yet either. But, yeah, we're about to move into the 70s where we get a lot more socially aware stories than we've had up to this point. And that's both good and bad. Because some of them are really good and some of them are like watching paint dry. They're just learning how to do it. Yeah, they're just learning how to do it. And when we get to the whole, you know, middle-aged British white men trying to write feminist characters in their 20s, yeah, that gets fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I already feel old. Yeah. <laughs> the hours I will lose, too. The hours we will lose. To trying to be charitable, saying, I do appreciate that they're trying, but... Mm. <laughs> Insert content here. Oh, I will, th- I will point out something that is kind of a uh, preview of what we'll get from Robert Holmes later. One of his common tropes is describing something as the most valuable in the galaxy. Okay. So the most valuable mineral in the galaxy, mm. the most valuable substance in the galaxy, this comes up in every single Robert Holmes. The infamous unobtainium. Yes, yeah. exactly. He's a, he's a master. <laughs> Why did I remind myself of some of the script, worst script writing in the galaxy? He has. But the, <laughs> the weird thing is, whenever he does it, the MacGuffin is not actually the most wonderful thing in some cases it's something that everybody thinks is the most wonderful thing but is actually kind of dangerous for them yeah. kind of like the argonite is a little bit is it? Something is. maybe i kind of missed that well not not so much dangerous for them it's just it's the most precious most val- valuable mineral in the galaxy because they haven't discovered anything more valuable mm. in that that way that people get you know like gold yeah. The prospectors are like, oh my god, all the Argonites been worked out this vein. We gotta find ourselves another vein. I guess that's the way they would talk. I don't know. Milo Clancy sounds a lot like uh, Jimmy Stewart. It's <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest thing. So you're hearing Jimmy Stewart and I'm hearing Victor French or Yosemite Sam. Yeah. So we have very different experiences of the character. Yes. It's somewhere in between. He certainly sounds different to me on the page because his speech patterns keep changing. Every once in a while you get the, Ooh, give me that there, Varmint! And every once in a while you get the, Oh, I'm sorry to hear that poor chap. And it's like, the hell? Yeah, the way he's written is kind of flitting between two different personalities yes and we keep being told that he's got a temper oh wait come to think of it madeline says that and she might be doing that to put everybody put more blame on him so it could be that i don't know huh. yeah there's just <laughs> thinking of old men trying to write feminist characters yes zoe well, she doesn't have as nearly as big a part in this story she has in a recent one. No, and neither she doesn't. do Jamie and the Doctor don't have huge parts either. I mean, the regular cast has pretty has less to do than usual. Mm-hmm. You know, get sealed into boxes and hurtle around and whatnot. <laughs> yes. um, but, I, but I do like how Dix writes her consistently as a problem solver who uses her scientific base of knowledge, but isn't so absurdly intelligent that it's obnoxious. 
Yes. Like, not the Wonderkin. Like, it actually yeah. makes sense in context. Like, Unlike Jane, Vicky. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, we've yeah. been, we've been yeah. accused on this podcast of hating Vicky. We actually oh, love Vicky. I like Vicky a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes. we do. It's just a, apparently yeah. one of our listeners thought we were being mean to her. But it's we'll like, get... no, not at all. No, we just want more for her. We want more for her, exactly. We want her to be better written. Because she yes. is yes. fantastic. Yes. Yeah. And we adore, and those of us who know her adore Marie and O'Brien. But in this case, yeah, Zoe... She's got some great moments in it, though, such as well, telling the doctor quite accurately that he may fuck this up, that he may oh, end yeah. up shooting them across the galaxy, yeah. and sure enough, he does. And her realizing where these shipments were going to in the first place, just yes. by being like, well, no, by their trajectory, that's mm-hmm. where they were going. And figuring it out before the V-ships. Yeah. But where there was something more interesting and subtle than I expected, and I think it might have been entirely on accident, is the teapot scene. Where Milo keeps yes. advising Zoe to make him some tea. And she takes a deep breath. <laughs> yes, but also, like, one point, like, the teapot is shattered. It's like, oh, there's a different one made out of indestructible metal. You know, that's what I make all my teapots out of. <laughs> or my, my most valuable minerals. But what would have been a more typical, oh, yes, I'm going to write the modern feminist teen girl would be she, like, does a neck roll and a foot stamp and says, you can't tell me what to do or yes. something. But what she does is more realistic mm-hmm. is that... She wants to continue to observe, so she just does it because that will allow her to continue doing what she wants to do. Yes. And, like, she's... It, it's more of an incognito performance of, sure, I'll be tea girl so I can keep watching the situation. And it's it's more realistic mm-hmm. than a foot stamp and a slogan that we would expect, usually from Dix and from other writers oh, as yeah. well. It's more natural behavior. I don't know if he did that on accident or it was more insightful. Than well, I. that would be Robert Holmes for you. Because he's also going to be the first writer to do uh, Sarah Jane Smith, who is considered mm. the most feminist character coming out of Doctor Who. Even when she's not written that way always. Um, but yeah, I, I thought, in fact, I particularly said that's one of the one good scenes in the story. And it's one that is definitely Robert Holmes. You get that sort of... She takes a deep breath, almost explodes at him, but as soon as she has the answer, she's like, oh, well, that's all I wanted to know. Sure, I'll make tea. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it, in some ways, it prefigured the the modern episode. Not that this is not the modern world, but New Who episode with uh, Martha and the boarding school. Was it 1916? Oh, yes. When she... Cuba nature. Is, yeah, constantly trying to avoid feeling the feeling these... Both unintended and fully intended casual insults and sort of formal insults as well. And she, a lot of it she just absorbs or ignores so she can continue to remain in her role as observer and adventurer and not sort of give herself away. Yes. And and that's where it's very overt that she's the subject of slurs and and, Mm. and horrible insults and, and jeers and whatnot. This is more subtle, but it does prefigure that idea of... There's an interesting article written a few years ago called something like Who Can Time Travel? Yeah. About how the the ethnicity, the, the sexuality, the gender of the time traveler, as it is observable to others, does matter, depending what and where they're when and where they're going yes. in history. Mm-hmm. And even though Zoe's not going not uh, it's not going to the past here, it's We've seen something like this before. This is the most, most subtle example we've seen so far. And I think it's largely an accident instead of an artistic achievement. Right. <laughs> a companion sort of quietly eating some shit mm-hmm. in order 
to remain the observer of the situation and not give exactly. themselves away or, or, or become the subject of action instead of being able to observe the action. Yes, it's kind of like something that the Doctor herself encounters in the new season when she goes back to the time of uh, the witch hunts and meets King James. And she shows up the psychic paper and tries to pass herself off as a witch hunter general. And the psychic paper won't allow her to do it. Hmm. She, she can only pass herself off as an assistant witch hunter general because huh. that's all the time will allow Oh, because he wouldn't expect to he see... He wouldn't expect uh, it. So he ha she has to defer to Graham, who's the oldest male hmm. in the party. Hmm. And she is a little annoyed by this <laughs> because she in fact at one point she has a line where she said i never had to deal with this when i was a bloke like i wasn't kidding these are hard times for women for not being drowned we're being patronized to death but yeah oh but that makes sense it doesn't make a speech but yes. it goes along with it yeah it does it, to remain in the situation. Absolutely. And I think there need to be there probably needs to be more moments like that. In fact, when we do get Sarah Jane Smith as written by Robert Holmes, she is going to have a line where she's traveled back to the thirteenth century or what have you, and she's going on about well, she's working in the kitchen briefly. There's a long story behind this. And she's talking to the woman running the kitchen and saying, why do, why do you put up with this behavior from the men? Well, this is a, a woman's place, girl. You don't question these sorts of things. And her response is, honestly, it's like you're still living in the Middle Ages. And she catches herself. Yeah, <laughs> and like, oh, you okay. are. Oh. <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah. Never mind. Yes. Zoe comes off well in this. I'm going to miss Zoe when she's gone. I'm really going to miss Zoe. It's been surprising to me. This has kind of been a revelation to me because all these years, the only way I knew Zoe was from Mind Robber, and she's kind of an, a little bit annoying in that story, and she also screams. Jamie, the doctor! Yeah. So it's like, I thought she was just another screaming companion. She's definitely not that. Victoria was. But Zoe... Zoe's had a lot to do in most of her stories. Yeah. She really has. More like we wanted Vicky to be able to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in this one when there's not a whole lot for her to do, she still shines. In, she in the moments that she has, she mm -hmm. still is true to the character that we've had in all of the stories. Exactly. And he writes her here very much the same way he wrote her in, um, in um, The Crotons. Mm -hmm. where she has that moment of you think that she's going to be all frightened and she's actually more annoyed yeah. when she's mm -hmm. frightened. Yeah, there's a more consistent characterization for Zoe than we've really had for most of the female actually most of the companions, period. And this is true. Dix actually writes much better Jamie than um, most of the writers. I was Steve. about to ask that, yeah. What, what, what do you feel about that, about Jamie? I, I think Dix does a has a pretty good take on him, and it's better than most of the writers had with Steve, because, mm. yeah, Steve was the least curious astronaut who ever lived. Yeah. <laughs> Never the, tried to figure out how the ship worked, or how no. to fix it, or anything like that. But the most multi-talented. He studied acting, yes, he studied yes. piano. Yes. Singing. Steve the dilettante, yes. <laughs> um, well, but, you know, Dix has, 
simple ideas of Zoe and Jamie, but he uses them in effective ways. Jamie is good at fighting. Not amazingly good, but he's mm -hmm. quite clever at think figuring things out, even when it's technology he's not familiar exactly. with. Exactly. He has a good strategic mind for it. Zoe is good at figuring out technology, even when she's not familiar with this particular thing yet. She has a good mind for it. Right. I think he has a nice has a nice dynamic of them being clever out of their depth in complementary ways. Indeed. That work well. That's true. And in fact, Jamie is a lot more practical here because his first thought is, we should get back to the TARDIS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We should, really should not be here. And it's the doctor who says, oh, come on. Where's your sense of adventure? And it gets them all in trouble. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Whereas more annoyingly written Jamie is just sort of an ass yelling and just kind of a... Well, you Sassanax. know, Sassanax. Well, <laughs> just you know, beating his chest and just bagpipes on feet and that yeah. sort of thing. This is well, this time he did say to her. He did say this only when she couldn't pull the door open that she should eat more porridge. Yeah, that was very funny actually. <laughs> it was that. Yeah, yeah, that's very much a Robert Holmes line. Oh, goodness. So there is some good in here. Oh yeah. There's plenty that's good. It's just. It's more of the same. Yeah. Endless corridors, spaceship corridors, yeah. cave corridors, but, rocket ship corridors. But it's not based under siege for once. Yeah, it is. Is it? Kind of. Well, the, <laughs> the big mining base. Oh, they yeah. all end up on the big mining planet. Yeah, but they're not getting invaded. Yeah. Nah. It's already been invaded because that's where the enemies are. I guess. Yeah. They still end up running around, all converging on and running around the same facility full of corridors. Well, bear this in mind. The next story? Rawr. Was originally Fair, ten it. episodes. Good lord! Holy crap! Lots of running around, <laughs> and it's a compressed. marathon of running around. Yes, and it's compressed to 144. The Iron pages, Man of running around, which tells you how much running around there is in the story. Yeah. So we're getting off light. You run around. You swim around. You bike around. It's all we in corners. We really do. What? Are, what is? What is wrong with you? <laughs> it's that wine. Even, That's what's going on. Even the little I complain about this every time. <laughs> Get a new set piece. That's true. Even the little bit of the the monotony, like the back and forth with them sending the beacons to the other planet, even that yes. was kind of like a genius move for the pirates to do. Like, just right, right. send them away for a minute mm -hmm. so we can try to figure something out. It yeah. wasn't as stupid as... The doctor's here, and then they're back here, and then they're back here again, and then it, yes. it, it wasn't so back and forth. And that's something else that we're getting that's an improvement on the original story, because remember how I said it's six parts? Mm -hmm. That's what took up most of the six parts. The spaceships going back and forth mm. in almost real time. <laughs> it's said to be one of those boring stories. Yeah, because it was trying to reproduce what actual space travel would be like so they're two hours away from the yeah, beacon and taking, they can't do warp nine and get they're there taking forever to get there yeah. yeah and of course six episodes that's how they yeah. they eke out the six episodes because this book does not feel like a six episode story it doesn't there no. are times when it feels like oh this is the episode cliffhanger like yeah jamie gets shot something blows that up. was that yeah. was episode two's cliffhanger whereas we for some reason the shouts murderer not realizing that he's not dead and not knowing that, yeah. I, I just think it's weird when people shot murderer when they see someone that they know shot down. It's like, that would not be my first reaction. My if first reaction would be like, oh, <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to save him. Oh my God. Yeah, which would probably be a little too dramatic in the opposite direction. Very, you know, Sydney Bristow, but... 
<laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do love things like, I wonder whether this power line is still connected. Zap, bang, flash. It's still connected, Doctor. <laughs> it is. I am going to miss her so much. I really am. So how much longer do we have? One story. Really? Yeah. The next book. The Last Hurrah. So that that's not really me giving anything away. No. I mean, we're, we're about to change artwork on the website. We're about to get new, you know, probably a new theme tune for the podcast. Because we're moving into the 70s. Yeah. Um... The books are suddenly going to take a shift into the 70s. We will get far fewer books written in the 80s because most of the books were written in the 70s and they were adaptations of 70s stories. So they're contemporary, yeah. mostly. Yeah, that's the good news. The bad news is it's almost all dicks. He's just, he's just churning them out. <laughs> yes. Except, except we're getting early dicks. We're getting preformed dicks. Oh, good. And we're getting dicks that are maturing. And those are always the best. And, God, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm not not actually talking about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, His earlier stuff is remarkably different than this, as we'll see. I mean, we've seen it a couple times. Yeah. We liked his novelization of The Abominable Stoneman, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, that was early dicks. And even something like this that's later, it's not bad yeah he's still working hard at it it's just this he hasn't given a lot of material to work with whereas seeds of death yeah that's a good script yeah there was a lot to go by with that one even if it has that weird time dilation effect going on i don't know if you noticed what we were talking about the fact that it seems like days are passing on earth whereas only hours are passing on oh the yeah. yeah oh yeah yeah it's just i mean weird. there were bits in this one where some some of the time taking place, the travels. What? It's, it's take a couple hours? How far away are they? They're going to a different planet? What? Huh? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Either way. I just realized, Trey's reading of this as a gay story might be onto something. Because in chapter 11, there was a bit that I noted was, that was particularly good, where Milo has to talk Dom back to himself. And Milo's being very caring and mm. just saying, you remember who you are, come on. Mm-hmm. And it's really nicely handled, and I remarked it was the sort of thing that Holmes will do very soon. He just isn't quite there yet. So, yeah, maybe there is something there. Yeah. All those candles everywhere. Mm-hmm. Because we know how the gays like the candles. We do. Yeah. Got a few burning around here. <laughs> Positively flaming. Yeah. Mm. And the sonic screwdriver. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We've got the sonic screwdriver. It is back and it's about time to coin a phrase. Yes. Though there's at one point you have to wonder why he didn't use it. Yeah, it's like the sonic locked door. Yeah. No, pull off the tuning fork. Yeah, pull out the tuning fork and then have Jamie throw it at the wall and get the right note. You know. Which is pretty brilliant. It's planned for time. And the doctor saying, I'm perfectly all right. I found I couldn't breathe, so I just stopped for a while. That whole reference to the respiratory bypass system, which we, mm. we know he has, but... The, yeah. Yeah, the writers don't reference know about him. Yeah, it will kill him, but it'll take longer, but it will. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. Exactly. 
a nice line here from Jamie. He's got his mysterious face on, he says, for the doctor. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's not going to explain anything to me. He's got his mysterious face on. And that ending. It ends... Dix ends his association with Target Books with a... With a raspberry. Oh, I didn't even think about that. I That's a raspberry. The last one. A Bronx cheer, as they <laughs> call it. Yeah. yeah. Which possibly is entirely appropriate for this book. Because the whole thing is kind of a Bronx cheer when it's compared to all the other stories that we've had during the uh, not, Trump era. I mean, it's not worse than other Dix books. No, it isn't. But the story, the 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 origin story, the source material yeah. is not inspired. Yeah, it's not Robert Holmes up to his best. And yeah, I can't think of a single Robert Holmes story that is worse than this one. The Crotons, even we enjoyed to some degree, mm-hmm. even though we couldn't figure out what the fuck they were they were meant for. <laughs> How, how do these things come into being? Why are they in existence? They, they just were. They just were. And they just are. Oh, God. Hermac just, just, Hermac just made me, the name made me think of a character from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Hermac! There's, there's, a, there's a character named Ermac. Oh, yes. Who is, in the game, was a glitch or mm-hmm. something? Either way, that's all I could think of whenever I was. You were expecting him to keep saying, "Get over here," (laughs) (laughs) something like that. Yeah, that would have been more amusing. Um, Yeah, I don't know. This one didn't didn't love it. Didn't hate it. There's just not a lot. Yeah, I can play you that clip that um, Trey was talking about of Milo Clancy. Um, Milo, and then we'll have to go to uh, Goodreads and say see what they have to say. But this is uh, Milo Clancy's first appearance, and he is indeed um, singing um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which is just strange. His egg is done. His egg is done with its little dispenser. Uh. I mean... Does that look like a daddy to you, Dalton? Man, that's not what I was visualizing with the hair. Of sorts, yeah. I have to wait until he's got a word in the dialogue here. Well, that was in the book. Is he supposed to be American? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a stab at an American accent. <laughs> yeah, that is stabbing an American accent. And we do mean stabbing. Over and over and over again. <laughs> yes, stop, with a very sharp stop knife. Stop trembling. Or a very dull knife, probably. Now, I think this is why I always thought this story was an F, because this is the existing episode we have, and look how long it's taking. Yeah, this is very uneventful. And Even in the book, it took an awfully long time for an adventure novel for him to prepare his egg. Yeah, well, it's a space egg. Don't you know? Okay, maybe we'll finally get to hear her back as well. This is B41. 
V41. That's her Mac. Liz 
Terrence Dix has made it readable, but this has to be the worst classic Doctor Who episode, stupid and monotonous. If it included some senseless teen angst, it would fit perfectly in the Virgin's new adventure line. <laughs> That's true, it would. <laughs> That's good. God, would it ever. Addison Shin gives it three stars and said, I gave this book three stars because it didn't blow me away, but it wasn't awful either. It was an easy read, and I didn't have to think too hard about it. The plot takes place in space where the mind character Lyle Clancy must help save the Doctor Zoe and Jamie from the space pirates led by Kevin and Dervish who've captured the group. Yeah, it turns into plot summary for a while there. Um, there were some parts in the book where some characters turned out bad or did acts of murder and this really shocked me at times. <laughs> Strangely formal. Okay. Yes. The setting was easy to picture because Dix did a good job of painting a picture of what space and some of the planets and ships were like. The author's writing sty, style helped to shape the book because sometimes in the chapter it switched to different characters in different places. Uh, that's kind of what fiction does. This helped the reader know what was going on at the same time in different places. If you're into pirates in space, this is a book for you. Which is to say, not a book for anyone. But amazingly, this <laughs> book did people get... people who were into pirates in space. Yeah, but this stars. is... The, would you actually get, recommend this to them? They're a completist. Okay. But amazingly, <laughs> this book did get a full five stars from Scott James, who says, I don't hand out a lot of five-star ratings, but this tight novelization was the most compelling science fiction story I've read this year. The first and only. Yeah. Exactly. God, even you heard that howl of pain from my cat. Even he disagrees. It's it's not well written. Far from it. Why did he give it five stars then? But the pacing, the characterizations of the themes made me stop and think about my own work and how easily it could be improved. Themes. Yeah. So he got self help out of this. Yeah, I guess so. Themes. I didn't see themes. I mean, this is about as this is about as deep as let's see. Something very undeep indeed. Uh, despite its very 60s roots, this story could be written for today's market and succeed no good. I deeply regret that only one episode of the serial remains, we don't. But we'll always have this book to make the Doctor live again. I can think of much better second Doctor books to make the Doctor live again, Scott. Just saying. Themes, yeah. <laughs> this was this book was about as deep as say a, a pool of spit on a hot summer day. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I couldn't think of anything else. I was trying to think of something yeah. one-dimensional. I'm always hoping that there's something deeper. I mean, we've had some good stories in the past that had some subtext. And yes. Some some obvious stuff going on. You know? Just, no. There and, was, I didn't feel like there was a theme at all going... And if it weren't for the dirty mind of Trey Corte, we wouldn't have something here. We wouldn't have even had the gay subtext of this one. Exactly. Uh, well, Allison, out of five. Um, well, I've got... Negative integers are not allowed. I've got a quote. <laughs> <laughs> but negative non-integer is I've got a quote here that I think... I think sums it up. There's another signal coming through as well, sir. It sounds like UHF. So this is essentially like a movie I would have seen on UHF in the early 90s. Yes. It would be like a late 70s or early 80s movie I'd never heard of before and would never heard of again, hear of again. And I want to ask people if they remembered it. They'd universally say no. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be terrible. 
Wouldn't be good, but I'd still watch the whole thing. Okay. So I'd, like Rocky Jones, Space Cadet. I've never heard of that. So yes, exactly. So I'd give it a 1.5, which I've given other things before oh. 1.5. Like that's not the harshest thing. I think I've like given one, one. I don't. 1.5 or 2. I'm actually surprised people were so offended by this one of all the merely okay ones that we have read that I'm a little bit defensive of it. Okay. Like it's a 1.5 or 2. It's a 1.75. Yes, 1.75. There we go. 1.75. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's not negative and it's not an integer. It's a positive uh, uh, non-integer. Ooh, how dare you. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an okay. It's, a, it's an okay February afternoon on a Sunday afternoon watching UHF. Okay. Or as a wise man used to say often, it was a quick read, it was a fun read. Except who, not who, fun. Who used to say that? Well, a, a wise man. <laughs> Speaking of which, Dalton. Speaking of whom, yes. It was, it was not a fun read, but it was a quick read. <laughs> um, no, yeah. It, yeah, I feel like we've definitely read other books that people really gave harsher critiques to. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's not bad. It's just bland and, and just... Bleh. It's more of the same, and we've read of so much of this from Dix. Yes. There's been so many of these... There have been so many of these stories in this series chronologically edit, as it aired. But mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we're receiving it worse than we would have with the first story like this, or even yeah. the 14th story like this. But it's this about 25. Yeah. And, so. and like I said earlier, it does carry on at a pretty quick pace. It's not like we're really... Tr- even when we're traveling through space waiting for something to happen, mm-hmm. we're at least getting details from multiple settings in the story telling us what is going on. True. To, to help keep it moving. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily boring, but it's just, there's nothing really going on. There's yeah. nothing really to take us outside of, I'm reading this book. Even mm-hmm. though there's more plot complexity than usual. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing to really make me think much. There's not a whole lot of character development, necessarily. Um, you even said that some of the, the casts were gone for recording. Yeah, so exactly. And, and I feel like if you completely took the TARDIS crew out of this story and just read it as it was, without them, mm-hmm. you could do that. Yeah, you could. It, it could exist as a story without the Doctor and, and Zoe and Jamie. Yeah. This would be, it would probably be an episode of some BBC anthology series. Yeah. Except it's not quite exciting enough to be one of those because it's not like, um, oh God, I'm trying to remember what they called the show that they used to have that was like this. Ah, But it's not like The Outer Limits. No. This would not be an Outer Limits episode. It would not be a Twilight Zone episode. It would... It'd have to have a major twist to be a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, and even even where there should be moments of like reconciliation with, uh, was it Madeline? Yeah, we don't get them with with Milo or even with her father. Yeah, we don't we don't get anything. I expected though. more of yeah an emotional climax to that story. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, your dad has been missing. You thought he was yeah, dead. Yeah, you'd expect more of a climax from Dix. Yeah. You thought that this... But you would be disappointed, I guess. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You the thought that, that his partner killed him, did away with him. You think something that... And you, there's nothing. It just, no. it just falls flat and it's whatever. So, uh, yeah, it's not the worst thing I've ever read. So I would say like two stars. But okay. there's not... Yeah, there's just not a whole lot here to go by. Not a whole yeah. lot to be 
excited for. Yeah. Even even from a Doctor Who story. Oh, I agree. Um, and as for me, it's one of those situations that knowing, having the foreknowledge that I have, I know I know what Robert Holmes is capable of, mm. and I know he's, he goes on to write literally some of the best episodes of the entire series. Period. So to read this and think, oh, this is a Robert Holmes script, and it's a missing episode. I'm kind of glad of that. I would not have to want to sit through it. Mm. It's bad enough I can sit through the Crotons. Yeah. So <laughs> that's yeah. The crotons had more traces of big ideas yeah it does it does but and dick's i guess because he's towards the end of everything there too he does do his best but the source material is so mediocre and so far below Holmes' later standards you can really tell when you get dick's novelizing a home script later on the really good ones that he puts his on all, all into it. He's like, "This is what my good friend wrote. Yeah. This is what I'm going to try very hard to bring out. Yeah. There's nothing here to bring out. It's just sitting there. It would have been majorly exciting, I think, for the viewing audience at the time. 1969, moon landing hadn't happened yet. Yeah. They were trying um, to do really." decent effects work some of the effects shots from the story are kind of impressive do we have stills of any of the we effect do. shots and we have well the we can also see the um the space starts in the existing in episode the and they're not bad but that's it and that doesn't translate to the page mm-hmm. i mean you don't read star trek books because you want to get a sense of what the enterprise would look like in prose you do it for the characters. I mean, this doesn't have characters that are worth it. There's a little bit of interesting technical techno, techno babble, excuse me, in it. Yeah. Like the the copper pins motif is kind of, or not motif, yeah. but concept is kind of interesting. It is, confused, but, but not nearly enough. Yeah. Not nearly enough. Two. Yeah. Which I think it may be the lowest. Harsh for one. you. Yeah, I think that's the lowest I've given the book, and it's not because of Dick's writing. It's the source material. Yeah. Yeah, because even even what Dix wrote was pretty pretty descriptive. It mm-hmm. it, it had a lot going for it. As but. we have said many times before, even bad Dix is decent Dix. We all like Dix. <laughs> we all like Dix. Well, <laughs> thank you guys, and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get the War Games. Ooh with special guest J.G. McQuarrie from the podcast Talking Who to You. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, though I can't imagine that, like us at Facebook at DW Ozship, at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Visit our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash DW Target BC. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes and give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter with DWTargetBC. Subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice if all else fails you, and it inevitably will. Email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Flush, this is, this is picking it up.
This isn't fucking All in the Family. (laughs) What? Uh, The first time you ever heard of Toilet Flush on American TV. Oh. Yeah. I did not know of this milestone. And it was played for laughs. As we would play it here. for drama? Yeah, well, no. Well, play you never for, know. Play you know, it for you pathos. Know. Yeah, you never know. It could be like the family goldfish funeral. Yes, there you go. Like that episode of Cosby. Oh, boy. Now we're bringing in Cosby. Oh, God. That's all I need. Uh, all right, let me just the volume here. Yes. Oh, you darn crazy galoot!